1: So here he is in the house of Potiphar, and Potiphar hands him everything and puts him in charge of everything and lets lets him work in his house where his wife is day after day after day. And we talked at length about the responsibilities of man and what you're not supposed to do, etc. And we talked also about the fact that if God is with somebody, it doesn't necessarily imply that this is a saint, which is a wonderful message of hope for all of us because if God were to be only with those who are saintly right what are we doing here instead we have to come to recognize these two polarity i mean our faith in general is all about these paradoxes right catholicism is all about paradoxes virgin mother god man being saved through the cross you want to live, you must die free free will, predestination, three persons, one God, and on and on it goes, right and re- Catholicism is the religion of the middle. <clears throat> by this we don't mean the religion of compromises, but rather the point where these paradoxes meet, where really the tension is felt, we don't let go of them usually, but we have to consider both of them and <clears throat> and so here it is another one of those. Paradoxes which is very significant for us, especially if we are trying to deepen our spiritual lives. On the one hand, we must consider our sinfulness. We're sinful people. Proverb tells us the just man sins seven times. So we do sin. And on the other hand, you have the holiness and purity and innocence and beauty of God. And we are comfortable if we can think of those two as separate as far away. Where it gets really, really hard is when we think of God being with us and we are the way we are. Because if you truly love somebody, then you are, in a sense, uh, pained by what you're showing this person. All the ugly sides of you when you know they are perfect, especially when they have given their lives for you. And then you're contemplating yourself and you know you're walking spiritually like a slug. You make progress like a slug. That's why I think slugs exist. Just to remind us how we walk spiritually. Right? We're carrying all this material stuff on our back. And then we're trying to walk. And we think ourselves we're holy simply because we had a good moment of prayer. But really we we're, we're, we're still have ways to go. And yet he is still with us. It's this kind of a polarity. God with us and who are we and how can we see ourselves in his eyes. Right? So... That's really where we are doing acts of charity, acts of hope, act of faith. Lord, I believe, strengthen my belief. And we will never stray away from him despite our repeated sins, despite the fact we're not where we wish we could be. Right? And, and that is really important to see that in the story of Joseph, God comes to Joseph where he is with his vanity and everything else. But it's God that loves Joseph first. And this is St. John, right? Brothers, love is this. God has loved us first. God knows everything about us, knows all our defects, our problems, our difficulties, our challenges. Yet he loved us first. And that isn't completely unconditional love. He could have not loved us. He chose to love us. He, He decided freely to love us. And how do we then correspond to his love? By loving others the same way. And one very good measure for us is who are our friends, who are the people we like to be around. Are they all cool people, smart people, intelligent people, people who are funny, people who who tell good stories? Or do we we not mind spending time with somebody who is handicapped, who has maybe a problem talking? Or during Mass, uh, there is uh, a a mother with a baby and she's taking her time maybe to go to the cry room or to go, how do we react to this? Are we just about to, you know, take out the flamethrower? How how do we, these are the things where we show love to Jesus. How are we towards others? And and the reason why I personally, really, I find this part of Scripture being my favorite in Genesis is because... Uh, for most of us, Joseph is not of the priestly order. Joseph is not a patriarch. Joseph does not offer sacrifices. Joseph does not build an altar. God does not speak to Joseph directly. Joseph really represents the lay folks, us. Right? Whereas Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob truly represent the priesthood. And that's why God and Jesus will say, I am the Lord of, or I am the God of, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it starts right there. It stops right there. Why? Because in the fundamental sense, of all the people that will come through, the priesthood stops with Jacob. Literally, it stops with Jacob, as is going to be seen by Moses, when the, 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 the Israelites lose the priesthood completely to the Levites, and it will take time before Jesus restores it. So literally, it stops with Jacob. right? But jo- Joseph, for us, is this layman, really involved in the care of the world, having all these things he has to do with He's been brought up, he's been brought low, but through it all, it isn't so much Joseph that it is God who stays with him in the ups and in the downs. And in a sense you see in this part of scripture a true image <clears throat> of the marital relationship where God is the husband and the soul is the wife. And who and how God as the husband does not let go. He does not divorce the soul even when the soul of a a creature betrays him, even when that soul falls low in vanity. He does not abandon Joseph, but stays with him throughout his life. And if you look at it from that angle, especially for men, you really see your duty. If you can read in, in this chapter what is not being said, God's action. Seldom do we hear God here, but we see his action all the way through. He is with Joseph. Are you men with your wives? Are you supporting them? Are you helping them? Are you encouraging them? Are you teaching them the truth? Are you standing by the teachings of the church and making sure that your wives understand them and are willing to live by them? and, And in general, you can say that the reason why a lot of women contracept is because of the lack of love on the side of their husband. Simple as that. Men, there's a call to duty here. On the other hand, for women, the obedience of love is what is what is God expecting from you because you are recipient of life. He does expect you to obey, but obey in love, just as Jesus obeyed in love. When Jesus submitted himself to the Father, it wasn't submission of a slave to a, a crazy master. It was the submission of a loving son to his Father. It is obedience and love. And if you do have a man who treats you like a queen, it is very easy to obey such a man. So if you are right now in a relationship, especially young women, if you know a man, and if that man is only after one thing, and one thing only, and you know exactly what I'm talking about, and he can't hold himself back, run. You got the wrong guy. Simple as that. So, that's why this book, the last part of Genesis is really about how we ought to act, and we, we, we learn that from him. So here he is, chapter 40, in jail. He was in the pit, now he's back in jail. And now we have two other uh, personages that appear in jail, a baker and a, um, um, let's see, a baker and a cupbearer, or something like that. Let's read. Sometime after this, the butler, the butler and the baker, right, of the king of Egypt and his baker offended the, their lord, the king of Egypt, and Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief butler and the chief baker. And he put them in the custody in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was uh, confined. The captain of the guard charged Joseph with them and he waited on them and they continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed, the butler and the baker, the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream and each dream with its own meaning. When Joseph came to them in the morning and saw them, they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers, who were with him in custody in his master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, We have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell them to me, I pray you. So the chief butler told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded... Its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, This is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his butler. But remember me when it is well with you, and do me the kindness, I pray you, to make mention of me to Pharaoh." And so, get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the hand of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into this dungeon. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh. But the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered, This is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief butler and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief butler to his butlership, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker, as Joseph had interpreted to them, Yet the chief butler did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. So, this is a chapter where dreams play an essential role. And in as much as they play an essential role, we must realize that they are exceptional. God speaks to us through dreams only in very exceptional cases. So, I'd like to point out to you that... um, um, Today, there is a craze, there is a new age, there is a movement of spiritism, as ancient as can be, nothing is new under the sun, and people do pay a lot of attention to their dreams. They ascribe uh, all sets of symbols to whatever they see in their dreams, you know, a white horse, a black horse, a frog, or whatever else may be the case, and then they they come up with an interpretation of those dreams. (coughs) Excuse me. If you notice here, verse 8, do not interpretations belong to God. In other words, when God wishes for a dream to be interpreted, he will send someone to interpret it rightly. Hence, we must not take it upon ourselves to interpret dreams. Rather, we should ignore them. If you have a dream, even a beautiful dream, let's say of a loved one of yours who died, who passed away, the right thing to do is to give it absolutely no attention save one. It might be useful to think of it as 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 though a reminder for you to pray for that person. But certainly do not believe that the dead are talking to you. This is expressly forbidden by God in Scripture. The dead cannot talk to us, unless in very exceptional circumstances, as happened with Padre Pio, but generally speaking, they are not allowed. They don't have that ability. You must understand, dead people cannot talk to you no more than I can talk to you if you were in China. I need a tool, a mechanism to reach you. Likewise, when you die, you don't receive new powers to communicate. It just doesn't happen this way you are who you are nothing has changed right if you are in heaven god will allow you to see whatever god wants you to see and only those saints who have been canonized have that power or authority to speak to us in very rare circumstances very rare so generally speaking dead people don't talk to us they and by the way, they don't have a need to talk to us. They're not itching to talk to us. If your parents are dead, it isn't that they wish they could talk to you. It's over. These attachments are gone. We don't, they don't live them the way we do. So please, this is superstition. Okay? And I, I've seen it so many times. And likewise, anybody who wants to read your future or, or your horoscope or the, the, the coffee thing, all of these are against God's law and God's rule and God's love and you must purify your homes from all of that nonsense because that's what it is. It's nothing more than sheer nonsense. And actually, it could be more and it can lead you into the occult, which is worse. Get rid of all of it. Right? Dreams are given in exceptional cases and typically, the one who receives them may receive them multiple times. and he will know something, and there will be be something that will trouble you, and then something will come to pass that will bring this, will confirm what was given. So again, I am not saying that they don't happen. All that I'm saying is that they happen with the same frequency of somebody winning the Loto. It does happen and somebody wins the Loto, but it's very infrequent. You're with me? Okay. So, having said that, Let's start with a commentary by St. John Chrysostom on Joseph. When you hear this, that is, when Joseph was in prison, sometime later, by the way, sometime later, we don't know how long he was in prison. Two years, five years, we don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us. When you hear this, dearly beloved, far from despising the good man's pusillanimity, meaning his, uh, his patience, his forbearance, be amazed rather at the fact that despite the onset of such awful difficulties, he put up with his internment there, nobly and thankfully. I mean, even though he had often been given authority by the chief jailer, still he found it harsh to be locked up and live with squalid and filthy people. Notice, in fact, his philosophical attitude even more, his bearing it in courageous fashion and giving evidence of great humility in every circumstance. Have compassion on me, remind Pharaoh of me, and get me out of this dungeon. Consider in this, I ask you, how Joseph says nothing against that disgusting adulteress does not blame his master or recount his brother's inhumanity to him. Instead, he suppresses all that in saying, remember me and have me taken out of this dungeon, for I was really abducted from the land of the Hebrews and have done nothing here, and yet have been cast into this prison. So the point that St. John is making is observe how Joseph is acting. You don't hear him getting overly upset. He may have been very upset. He may have been very angry. He may have gone through a whole range of emotions that we go through when something happens to us. But in his dealings with people, he does not allow that to come across and bear upon them and for him to become a burden upon them simply because he's upset. Oftentimes, we confuse anger with justice. We think that because I'm angry... Everybody, I have the right to make sure everybody else around me is going to suffer. But that is not the case. Anger may never be confused with justice. And if I really sat down and thought about it, more often than not, I would find out that I have no right to be angry. For it may be said that only the just, only the one who is truly just has the right to be angry. But who amongst us can be called just? That is a key consideration. And so Joseph understands that and he does not, when speaking to the cupbearer and to the baker, remind them of the fact that he was imprisoned unjustly because of the woman who accused him of doing something he didn't do. He doesn't bring up the fact that his brothers threw him in a pit that the Amalekite kidnapped him and sold him as a slave to the Ishmaelites, and that the Ishmaelites, his cousin, second-degree cousin, sold him to the Egyptians. He passed all this on, on in, in silence, and only makes his case very briefly. I did not deserve to be here. Please bring my case before Pharaoh. Now, a cupbearer and, uh, cup and the cupbearer and a baker. <clears throat> These, uh, these were official positions in the house of Pharaoh, which are attested to in many documents. The cupbearer plays a crucial role because he is the one who tastes anything the Pharaoh is going to drink. Why? Because in um, the house of Pharaoh, you could imagine all the intrigues going on and the attempts at, uh, at poisoning the Pharaoh. Hence, if the cupbearer says this drink is fine, Pharaoh must trust him. How does Pharaoh know that the cupbearer hasn't received an antidote before tasting this? Hence, it's a position of great trust and wealth and power. Because he has the ear of Pharaoh and he can influence him in many different ways. That's the cupbearer. The baker, we might think of Egypt back then as a place where they might eat some sort of a flat tortilla bread of some sort. Maybe a little bit dusty because, you know, it's Egypt, the desert, the camels and all that. Um, We have evidence of no less, of, 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 of at least 40 different recipes for making bread and at least 20 different recipes for baking cakes. So the basket in question, when he speaks of the basket, is a basket of a varied food. It was a very sophisticated table. Right? So they're not eating you know, a, a piece of bread and, I don't know, mango and a banana and that's it. The Pharaoh had a very sophisticated table. The interesting thing is both of them were in jail. And so the suspicion is during Pharaoh's feast, something happened related to food. And Pharaoh didn't know who did it, but he suspected these two, his cupbearer and his baker, and he threw them in jail until he figured out what he's going to do with them. So presumably, investigation is going on, and he's trying to determine who's real, who's guilty, and who's not. And he came to the conclusion that the cupbearer isn't guilty, but the baker is. So maybe it's uh, poison through the bread or something. Who knows? Right? We're not told. But the mere fact that both of them were going to be judged on his feast day, which was going to happen three days hence, indicates possibly that this, the action had taken place on the same feast day sometime earlier. Each of them obviously dreamt and they were distraught. Now why were they distraught? Because in Egypt, as in all of Mesopotamia, they took dreams with very, very seriously. And so they had dream interpreters. In fact, they have what is called the Book of Dreams, which is a book that listed a whole series of images and their possible meaning. So, for instance, um, so the Hieratic papyrus, probably dating to the early reign of Ramses II, we're talking 1279 to 1213 B.C., has on each page of this papyrus a vertical column of hieratic signs beginning like like so. If a man sees himself in a dream, each horizontal line describes a dream followed by the diagnosis, good or bad, and then the interpretation. For example, if a man sees himself in a dream looking out of a window, good. It means the hearing of his cry. Or, if a man sees himself in a dream, with his bed catching fire, bad. You're going to wonder if you really need somebody to interpret that for you. But be it as it may, it means driving away his wife. The text first lists good dreams and then bad ones. The word bad is written in red. We haven't invented anything. Which is the color of ill omen. Why? Because it's a spilling of the blood. The blood is there to life. Therefore, red means... right. And then far from being cast aside by advanced civilization, these ideas developed with it and were systematized. So, for instance, um, um, yeah, and then they took for granted also that uh, divinities would communicate to you through dreams. Most dreams came unsought, but occasionally supernatural communications were solicited by what is called incubation. And incubation was this thing where uh, the person would go and sleep in a holy or sacred place, not not sacred to them. That is, soliciting the the, uh, the a dream by the divinity, and that would be called incubation. And um, <clears throat> and then they slept, and there were there was actually a ritual preparation. And among those shrines that were known in antiquity for vouch oracles to sleeping worshippers is the temple of Esculapius at Epidarius, where dreams were obtained and which remedies were revealed to cure diseases, the cave of, the cave of uh, Trof- Trophonius, the temple of Serapis, and that of Hathor, near the Turquoise Mines of the Sinai Peninsula. And uh, Hathor being ob- obviously in Egypt. And, um, and then there were also... Um, and in case a deity would not want you to receive a dream, there were magic formulas to wrest a dream from a deity. So you compel the deity, you force the deity to give you a dream. And so these were magical formulae used for this pur- purpose and it's contained in a Gnostic Papyrus of relatively late date in the Leiden Museum entitled Agathocle's Recipe for Sending a Dream and other places. Now, um, in Daniel chapter 2 verse 2 and f- uh, following, we see that there are potherim or dream interpreters which might be called upon to discharge the to discharge uh, of recalling dreams of, for, that were forgotten by the dreamers. Not only could they interpret dreams, but there were guys who specialized in telling you what the dream that you dreamt was about and then interpret it for you. There was a whole profession around these dreams in Egypt, in Mesopotamia, in, um, uh, among the Hittite, all over the region, with one exception, Israel. In Israel, dreams were frowned upon and there were no dream interpreters. Now, I want to make a couple of comments here. We are made in the image and likeness of God because what? Why are we made in the image of likeness in God? We have a soul. Everything else has a soul. But that's a good good point. You're right. So, animals have souls... So what's the difference between the the soul of an animal and our soul? Hold on. Before we get to to Jesus, hold on. What is the difference between the soul of an animal, your beloved cat, and your kid? What's the difference between these two? The soul of an animal is called natural. When the animal dies, so does the the soul of that animal. So if you're entertaining a hope to find skimpy in heaven when you get there, you might want to revise this. Now... God could recreate Skimpy for you if you need him in heaven, but the animals are not going to make it to heaven. You understand that? Yeah? There's a fundamental difference between animals and humans. Humans have what? Supernatural souls. Supernatural souls. We're the only ones among the created order to have such a soul. All right. Now, what what is the key aspect of the supernatural soul. Reason. Your ability to reason. Reason is what makes us in the image of God. Reason. Not emotions. Why? We put a lot of weight and deal on our emotions. Why is it that emotions are not important or not essential to be made in the image and likeness of God? The reason is because there is another, well, there, there are other creatures who are also made in the image and likeness of God. Who are they? Angels. And angels are what? Spirits. And they have no emotions. The emotions are tied to your body. Where do you feel the emotions? In your body. Right? Angels have no emotions. So we think of them as some sort of a cold iceberg. Right? But that's not the case. Because really the fundamental appreciation of things lie in your, in your reason. So reason is what makes us in the image of God. Now, what is, what is, what is the intent of the devil? What does he want to do? What, what does he want to do? He wants to erase that image. Right? He does not want us to be made in the image and likeness of God. So what is he going to attack? Our reason. Our reason. He is going to attack our reason. Now, he will attack many other things, but our reason. So he loves if we develop superstitions. Because it's a disfigurement of our reason. He loves it when we cannot express ourselves well. Because it defigures our reason. So when you hear people speaking like so... Like, you know, like I saw him, like, you know what I mean, like, he, he's he's giddy with joy. Because when you don't use language properly, when you are unable to express yourself and make an effort so that your words are intelligible, and they mean what you want them to mean, nothing more, nothing less, you are moving away from that image of God. You, can you imagine Jesus Christ standing in front of you and saying, like, you know, dude, can you? Why not? What is it, why is it funny? Because you know that something intrinsically is wrong if, you could, if, if God were to speak like this. He loves it when we fall prey to other gods. Why were all the gods of the Egyptians with animal heads? Because he made him very happy to see us worship that which is less than us. The devil is very happy these days when he hears people talk about their dogs as if they were their kids. Oh, we've adopted dogs. I just adopted two dogs. I have colleagues who speak this way who have a really hard time understanding the difference between an animal and a human being. So anything that obscures our conscience, anything that occults reason, Anything that attacks our intellect is working to the advantage of the devil. I do not mean by this, by the way, that we should all be super theologians and super scientists, a bunch of Einsteins running around, and that's not what I mean. But I do mean that our reason must be pure, so that it longs after the truth. Our reason must be directed to the truth. And there are many things in our lives that tend to take us away from this. Anxiety. Anxiety is never from God. Why? Because anxiety is fear without a source. If you're standing in the middle of the road and there's a big boulder coming down, and you're afraid, that's a very good thing. You should be afraid. It's a reaction in your being, it's an instinct in us that compels us to get out of the way. Your adrenaline pumps up and all the hormones get kicked in, so you can do things you usually can't do. Run really fast or do something. It makes perfect sense. But if you're sitting in your house being afraid that a boulder is coming down the street in Denmark, that is now not fear, that is anxiety. Why? There is, there is no boulder running down some street in Denmark. You're just making that up. But you're, re, you're feeling the fear of it. That is something the devil loves to nurture in us. And what is the primary anxiety he loves to nurture in us? Which one? Thank you. See, we call it the fear of death. Isn't that interesting? The fear of death. But if you really think about it, what does it mean to be afraid of death? You might as just as well be afraid of life. I mean, it's not something you can control, can you? It isn't a boulder coming down. It isn't something material. What we really mean by that is that we're facing the unknown. And we are anxious because we don't know what's behind that veil. And what did St. Paul says? Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? Because what did Jesus do when he rose from the dead? He lifted the veil and, show us, and showed us what's on the other side. Hence, a true believer in Christ rejoices in death and is not afraid of it. The fathers of the church call death the anti of the wedding feast of the Lamb, meaning the chamber that precedes the room, the hall in which the feast is taking place we are in that room waiting for the doors to open where we can finally celebrate the wedding feast of the Lamb. Yeah? So, in the ancient civilizations, the reason why we always said that Israel was the best, bar none, no one could get, get closer to them, was precisely because in Israel, there was this preservation of the rational thought coupled with wisdom and a spirituality that tended towards the true god you can survey the entire the entire ancient world from east to west and north and south you will not find people as great as elijah isaiah ezekiel daniel job neither on the level of rationality nor on the level of spirituality And you can see, therefore, the workings of the Holy Spirit through them. I do not mean by that that the Holy Spirit was not working throughout the rest of the world. The Holy Spirit worked everywhere. But because of the special calling to Israel as the firstborn of God, the calling was more fruitful amongst them than anywhere else. Until the coming of Christ, where everything changed. All right. So... There were these interpretation of dreams, and these guys are sitting in jail thinking, well, we can't have access to those, to the, to the guys who interpret dreams for us. It would be like us sitting in jail and having a toothache and thinking, well, I can't have access to a dentist. This is how it was established in their minds. It was a profession. You had to have a specialist come and interpret, interpret that to you. And now Joseph comes, and notice what he says. Joseph answers and says, Do not interpretations belong to God? What is he saying? Do not interpretations. What, what is he really saying? Don't worry about the professionals. Yeah. Don't worry about the professionals. You see, it isn't just a statement that said, I can interpret that for you. You might read this and think Oh, he's saying, Well, don't worry, I'm I got special you know I have special access. I don't have to connect to the internet, even though there is no T1 line here. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, do not interpretations belong to God. Meaning, God will give the interpretation. And by the way, I'll tell you right now, Joseph interpreted these two dreams, and interpreted the dream, the Pharaoh's dream, but after that, he didn't interpret anybody else's dream. So it's a misconception to think of him as some sort of a, of a, dream interpreter on a professional basis. Joseph had no special talents. God gave him the grace as it was needed, just as he gives us the grace today as it is needed to do what we must do. No more, no less. Tell me, tell them to me, I pray you. So the chief butler told his dream to Joseph and he said, in my dream, there was a vine before me, and then there's this sort of telescoping of images that went really quickly. The vine had branches. The branches budded. It blossomed. It shot that the blossom shot forth. The clusters ripened into grapes, and then the grapes became wine. It was very quick, which gave Joseph the intuition that whatever he's talking about will happen very soon. Okay. And he notices that he has Pharaoh's cup in his hand, and he took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. And that led him to think that he will be restored back to his position of trust. Contrast this with the dream of the uh, baker. The baker had the following dream. Three cake baskets on my head, in, so think of them as uh, three baskets, as you would see today, just baskets with uh, different baked baked good in them. And he's carrying them on his head. And um, the uppermost basket had all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out. So Pharaoh was not eating it out, it was the birds, and out of my head. And so here, he's not serving Pharaoh. He doesn't have Pharaoh's cup or plate in his hand. He's actually out in the field, and the birds are eating the, the, the bread. In, Egyptian, um, in, in the Egyptian re- religious um, thinking, the body is very important because you need it in order to be, to, to be able to cross the land of shadows. So, if you want to really punish somebody, you don't bury the body. You allow it to be destroyed. And so in this case, he, the birds eating flesh or eating from the is an indication of utter destruction. That's what happens to him. So uh, this idea, by the way, is not something that was lost on the mafia. The Italian mafia, which has a Catholic background, when it determined to kill somebody, not only will they decide to send a hitman to kill this person, but they will entice this person to commit a moral sin and kill him while he's committing the mortal sin to make sure he goes to hell. So, again, what goes around comes around. We don't tend to invent anything new. We just go back and re- recycle all, all things. So I told you about the, the rarity of God speaking to us in dreams. I'll give you some references in Scripture. So God may enter into communication with man through dreams, and that is asserted in Numbers the book of Numbers, chapter 12, verse 6, and more explicitly in the book of Job, chapter 33, verse 14 and following. God speaketh once by a dream and a vision by night, when deep sleep falleth upon men, and they are sleeping in their beds. Then he opens the ears of men and teaching instruct them in what they are to learn, and teaches them and instructs them in what they are to learn. So, uh, divine revelation through dreams occurs in the Old and the New Testament. Most cases, the dream comes straight from God. We've seen some of those in the case of Abimelech, who took Sarah. God spoke to him in a dream. In Jacob, Genesis twenty-eight twelve and thirty-one ten. In the Book of Kings, the first book of Kings, chapter three, verse five to fifteen, Solomon receives a dream. Nabucodonosor receives a dream in in Daniel chapter 2, verse 19. And then obviously St. Joseph chapter in Matthew chapter 1, verse 20. And Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. And St. Paul in Acts 23, 11 and 27, 23. So dreams do occur. But if you count the number of times these dreams occurred in Scripture, it's probably less than 20 in the whole entire history of Scripture. So be very careful with this business of dreams that I've told you about. One of the problems with it is that in people who have not yet developed a mature spiritual life, who are new to, the, to this journey, it will stoke, it will increase your vanity, your, sen- your sense of specialness. Thinking if God speaks to me, then I must be special. But when God spoke to Abimelech and telling him about, uh, about Sarah, Abimelech was nothing special about him. Likewise, Nebuchadnezzar received a dream, and it didn't indicate that he was special. So the fact that you receive a dream, even if the dream was true and authentic and from God, is not to be taken as an indication of your own holiness. Do not confuse the fact that God wishes to communicate something through you to others with your own personal holiness. Sometimes the two may may, um, coincide, as is the case with St. Bernadette, and the children of Fatima, in other cases, they need not to. As was the case with Balaam, the prophet of God. Now, there are prohibitions in Scripture to observe dreams. So, in Leviticus 19.26 and Deuteronomy 18.10, you are not to observe dreams. But the prophets from the 8th century BC onwards repeatedly warned the people against giving heed to their dreams which they dream. Jeremiah, chapter 29, verse 8. Dreams follow many cares, says the book of Ecclesiasticus, chapter 5, verse 2. And the book of Sirach wisely adds that dreams have deceived many, and they have failed that put their trust in them. The book of Sirach, chapter 34, verse 7. According to the second book of Chronicles, chapter 33, verse 6, this was one of the faults which brought about the downfall of Manasseh. Above all, the Israelites were warned in every manner against trusting in the pretended dreams of false prophets. Behold, I am against the prophets that have lying dreams, says the Lord. Jeremiah 23:32 and Zechariah chapter 10, verse 2. And there are other passages as well. So in general, the prohibition is really about the superstitious nature of these things. And um, I can I'll point out to you that Saint. Cyril of Jerusalem, Saint Gregory of Nyssa, Saint. Gregory of the Great taught very clearly emphatically on this issue and warned people about heeding their dreams. So St. Thomas Aquinas gave some directions around this issue, and he said, "Is divination through dreams unlawful?" And he answers, "The whole question consists in determining the cause of dreams." and examining whether the same may be the cause of future events, or at least come to the actual knowledge of them. Dreams come sometimes from internal and sometimes from external causes. Two kinds of internal causes influence our dreams. He says, Animal, inasmuch as such images remain in a sleeping man's fantasy, as were dwelt upon him while he was awake, the other found in the body. It is indeed a well-known fact, so think of it as a psychosomatic reason of the dream. So understand this, The brain, okay, what is the brain? What is the brain? Let's talk about the brain for a second. How do you characterize the brain? Yeah, it's an organ. What kind of organ is it? The brain is a muscle. It is known to contract and expand. It's a muscle. Where's your soul? I mean, where's your intelligence? In your soul. The center of your intelligence is not in the muscle. It's in your soul. Huh? That is why the church teaches, and logically so, that if you have someone who is mentally handicapped and is unable to use his or her brain, he or she has the full human dignity because it is, the center of it is in the soul. It just so happens that a brain is handicapped. It doesn't take away anything from who you are if your brain, the soul, if, if, if a muscle is handicapped. You understand that? So the brain is a muscle. But here's one thing about this this muscle. It doesn't sleep, just as your heart. The heart doesn't go, it's 6 o'clock, I'm done, I'm checking out. Good night. Neither does your brain. It keeps on functioning all the time. So as we sleep, guess what? The brain is processing and functioning. And it can create images, and it can produce dreams, which are utterly meaningless. There are other reasons why you dream. It could be because of stress. So there's a whole host of very well-known dreams where you might dream of yourself being, let's say, being in a public place um, and um, in your pajamas. And everybody's going to come out of class, let's say, in university in in two minutes from now. These types of dreams where you're in some place and you're not how you should be in that place are all stress-related. There's a whole host of studies in psychology about the the way the brain is trying to let, let, let go or deal with stress through these dreams. And so these are internal causes. And then you have external causes for dreams. And these may be God or the devil. And it is impossible for us to tell which is which without real, serious examination. So we the devil knows we're gullible, we are willing to believe anything that comes to us that sounds extraordinary, and he plays on that. So we have to be very careful, and the rule of thumb is that if you have a dream that seems extraordinary to you, that touched you in very strange ways, or very powerful ways, the best thing you can do, find yourself, seek a priest, who is holy and wise, and... Tell the dream in confession. Confession is not just about sin. It's a ministry of, of, of uh, mercy. And you receive much mercy by going to confession. It strengthens you. And you tell the dream and you see what the priest will say to you. And if the priest says, forget it, which is usually what they will say, then you have to take this as if God just told you, forget it. That's the right way to act because you're showing humility, you're showing prudence, you're showing wisdom, you're not relying on your own judgment. You're not showing, you're, you're showing also uh, uh, control because you're not, you haven't shared your dreams with all your friends. You've kept it secret. All these are proper ways of behaving when you're facing these these sorts of things. And we notice these are characteristics that Joseph shared because he tells them the dream and he doesn't ask for a thank you. He doesn't ask for, to receive anything only to be remembered. But unfortunately, the um, the cupbearer forgets him. Now, why does he forget him? Why do you think he forgot him? If you are being restored to your old position of power, do you... Would you really go and tell somebody, you know what, there's this kid down there. He already told me it's going to happen to me. Would you? No. See, Pharaoh had seen my innocence and been restored. That's all that matters, right? It's power. Power is, is, is like acid for charity. Right? Power dissolves charity in our heart. Very, very quickly. Power is the thing that makes us very self-centered. Hence, we must pray for those who are in positions to exercise power. It's our duty to pray for the president. It's our duty to pray for the governor. It is our duty to pray for those who represent us in, uh, in official uh, ca- capacity for the priests, for the bishops, for the Pope. We must pray for them because power corrupts. It eats a charity. Power has its own care and makes us busy and takes us away from what is otherwise really important to, to us in front of God. Um, the antidote to power, especially if you are put in a position to exercise power, if you have, let's say, a company, you have employees, you have power. If, um, if let's say, you're um, <clears throat> you're working on your own, you're not an employee, you have power. You have power of your own time. You can do whatever you want. And It can be hard for you to listen to somebody else because you're not used to this. You're your own boss. You're going to do the way you want to do. If... You are an employee and you're a director. You're a CTO, a CIO. You're in some sort of position. you got power. You're asked. God puts you in those positions for you to exercise the power. He's not taking them away from you. So I'm not saying <clears throat> this is bad. Things need to be done and people are called to do them. But how can you exercise these powers without being eaten by them, without being consumed by them? And the only answer, the only answer in this case is a very active life of prayer where you're going to confession regularly. Confession is an antidote to the cravings of power because you're on your knees and you're talking about all the stuff you really don't care to talk about. And you're accusing yourself and you're asking for God's mercy. That helps control the cravings for power. The second is to really develop a, a, a discipline of prayer. Spend 15 minutes in the presence of God on your own. That is going to also help you keep your eyes focused on that which is essential. Because when God visits you with his consolation, as he does for those who are faithful to prayer, eventually God comes and visits you with his consolation, you will come to know the real meaning of peace. You will come to know that which is you really yearning for and you really want, God gives you glimpses of it, and your soul will say, "If I only could be joined to you right now, all I want is you." And the third thing that is really important to control power is work on your concupiscence in general, right As we said, you know concupiscence is this big word, which means all the areas in our lives, all the disorders of our passions gluttony, as we've spoken about last time, lust, impatience, anger, and all the other ones, all the hidden ones, the vanity, envy, jealousy, all the disordered desires. Right? And you need to interrogate yourself, question yourself. Right? I, do I have too many material possessions? Is your house full of stuff you don't use. Do you have 66 pairs of shoes in your closet? Do you have 22 pounds of jewelry? Do you have excess stuff, whatever it may be, in whichever, er- which in all areas of your life? When you work on your spiritual life, your guardian angel who's always there begins to show you these areas where you need to simplify. You need to remove the clutter. And I will wager and say this to you. Typically, your house, your home, if if, if I came into your home, I can look at your home and I will have a very good idea of your inner spiritual soul. Because your house reflects it unwittingly. It reflects that which is really valuable to you. At the end of the day, we are all right now, all of us, all of us are living on a dirt hill. That's where we all live. We have a dirt hill, and we decided to give a lot of value to the dirt. And we've split the dirt into different pieces, and some pieces are bigger than others, and we've built tin cans, and we live in them. And we fight over the whole thing. From an angelic perspective, when angels look at us, we look utterly absurd. Our span of life is so short as far as an angel is concerned. You realize angels are at least 13 billion years old. They're at least as old as the universe is. This is how long they've been in existence And they look at us, and from their perspective, our shoes and our jewelry and our books and our laptops and our cars and all the things we ascribe value to are nothing more than dirt. It's just dirt. And we spend so much of our time and effort giving it so much value. When for the rest of eternity, for the rest of our lives, none of it is going to matter. I always reflect on this. You'll hear me bring it over and over again. We don't understand eternity. We really don't. We don't. We don't have the capacity to understand it. Let me show it to you. Uh, How old is St. Peter? St. Peter is 2,000 years old, at least. Or maybe a little less than 2,000 years old. Well, no, he's at least 2,000 years old. Well, it doesn't matter. Any neighbor of 2,000 years old, right? Think about the life of Saint Peter. He died upside down on a cross. Not a very pleasant way to die, is it? Now, okay. So he lived a life here, maybe 60 years old, maybe 70, maybe 70 years old, out of the 2,000, and he had to suffer. But that was 1,000. 900 and maybe 20 years ago. And since then, it's been 1,920 years of absolute, complete ecstasy. Take all the joyful moments of all human beings that have ever lived. Combine them all together. String them all together. Condense them into one second. That would be a shadow of the kind of happiness waiting for you in heaven. And he's had one thousand nine hundred and twenty years of those. Okay. Saint Peter one day will be one million years old. Can you understand one million years old? At the neighborhood of one million I start having short circuits. I don't understand one million. I can't understand a thousand. Because we have historical facts that can't can understand one thousand. One million? We have nothing to experience. The only thing we have are rocks one million years old. And they're pretty dumb if you look at a rock. You know, you can talk to the rock all you want, it'll never answer you back. One million And when it'll be one million year old? It'll still be a blink of an eye. He'll get one billion years old. And then one trillion. What's one trillion? I got no clue what one trillion is. And that's a blink of an eye in eternity. Do you understand we don't understand eternity? We have no clue what eternity is. But that's what's waiting for us. And instead, a pair of shoes can be so much more real in eternity. And so much more meaningful to us And we put into into it so much more value and we spend so much more time and so much more care worrying about what pair of shoes we should buy. And we clean it and we keep it on an up and up. And we spend more time worrying about our shoes and our hair and our face and everything else. But we won't go to confession. Do you see how unreasonable we are? From a logical point of view. This is, this is what, where the battle is. And this is why someone like Joseph is such a shining example for us. He's in jail. He's been forgotten by everyone. And yet, he does not lose faith. He does not lose hope. He does not lose his sense of charity. He kept his eyes focused on the essential. So tonight, maybe you want to go home Spend a little bit of time in prayer and ask yourself this very simple question. What is really essential for me? If my house were to burn tonight and I had to run out and take three things, what would they be? And always remember where your heart is, where your heart is, there will your treasure be. So, we'll uh, we'll take a quick break. We'll finish with, with a prayer, and then we'll take some questions. Yes. Uh, yes, what makes us in the image of God is the fact that we have a supernatural, immortal soul. But what is the characteristic of this immortal soul? What is the one thing that is really, that, that shows, that makes evident that we are made in the image of God? It is our reason. All right. So, when... When, I'm ta- when I talked about what the devil wants to attack, I'm talking today, when he is tempting us. What is his intention? What is he wanting to get to? He wants to get a deformation of our soul. Because at the end of the day, what's going to save us? What is going to save us is truth. Right? Come to me. Follow me, says Jesus. I will lead you to the truth. And the truth will set you free. And who- what is truth? I am truth. It is the person of Jesus Christ. So whenever we believe in something that is not true, it's a deviation. It takes us away from our final destination. How do we come to believe in something that is not true? Through the process of our reason. So whatever he can do to block our reason, to confuse it, he's very happy about that. Do you understand? Because at the end of the day, most of the things we do is due to a, um, a refusal to view the truth or to be convicted by it. And we justify it in so many different ways. Well, emotions are one way in which he can reach to, he can, he can help torque our reason, right? So, effectively, the will has to make a final decision, right? The will says yes or no. But when the will is illumined by our reason, when the will understands things, then he's able to make the right decision. The, the, the devil intends on deforming, on clogging, on confusing our reason. Our emotions being out of whack is a wonderful way to do it. Because then our, the body, what we receive, the senses that we see from the body can take over. Right? Take somebody who's in a lot of pain. We see he lost his reason. Right? What do we mean by that? Pain caused him not to think appropriately. This was not so before original sin. You would, have, you would not have felt pain. You would not have gone to a position where you would <clears throat> lost the real use of reason. That's why we say that being drunk is a moral sin, Because you've completely erased the image of God in you, which is your reason. Do you understand? Yes. Yes. Huh. Interesting question. So the center of intelligence is in the soul, not in the brain. Now, does this mean that someone who is a genius has a stronger soul? No. What is the strength of soul, by the way? There is no such thing as a strong or a weak soul. Souls don't have these kinds of um, characteristics associated with them. There are what God calls talents. That he gives to all. But in as much as we use our talents with their capacity, we receive the same answer. Well done, good and faithful servant. Right? So someone who is given, the let's say, a special talent in science ought to use it to give glory to God. Someone who is given a special talent in cooking ought to use it to give, to, to give glory to God. All of us are given talents. Now, we on this earth, because of our our dirt approach, have decided to prioritize the importance of those talents. Are we equal? We are equal in dignity before God. The presence of intelligence or the lack of intelligence, the presence of musical abilities or their lack, don't add or take away from our dignity before God and the love that He bestows upon us. At the same time, we're not all equal, no. No. None of us can compare to Our Lady. Some are given more than others. Remember the parable of the talents? He gave five to the one, three to the second, one to the third. That is absolutely just because God owes us nothing. God would be unjust. To be unjust is to refuse to give one what is due to one. For instance, you bought me three pounds of broccoli. I owe you five bucks. I don't give you five bucks. I'm being unjust. Make sense? Okay. You give me, as a gift, a bag of broccoli. Now, if you go around and say, well, he didn't give me five bucks, I haven't been unjust, have I? Because I didn't owe you this five bucks, right? Make sense? Okay. So, what does God owe us? How could God be unjust? Yeah? Sure. No, I did not say that. I said, most of the time... Those who have passed away cannot communicate with us. No, 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 not crowned. Those who are canonized. Canonized, yes. Canonized saints can appear to us. As St. Charbel did, for instance, or Our Lady does, or some of the saints did. They can do so with special permission from God. But they don't have the power to do it on their own. Yes, God, the Trinity, gives them the ability to see and hear in conformity to the greatness of their mission. So not all of them see or hear to the same extent that others. So there are degrees of glory in heaven, right? Yeah. It doesn't mean that she will appear to you. And Saint Rita on her own could not hear you. She cannot hear your prayer on her own. The prayer goes through God to her. So what I'm trying to point out here is that none of us on our own, receive special powers. What we receive in heaven is the union with the Trinity, to behold the Trinity as the Trinity is. And God, through his own special mercy, allows some of us to hear the prayers of those who are on earth and allow us, therefore, to intercede for them because of his mercy. Do do we understand each other? That's really always the work of the mercy of God that he allows some of his elect to intercede for us. Yeah, and all of it goes through Our Lady, by the way. Everything goes through Mary. Yes, no, it's not. There the are degrees of glory that are ascribed to different people. Not all have received the same glory in heaven, right? And therefore, Saint pa- Saint Saint Padre Pio obviously receives a different glory than a man who lived a good life, was faithful, and entered heaven. Their glories will be different make absolute sense, right? We can't think that Our Lady is going, the glory of Mary is compared to the glory of uh, someone who just lived a normal life. Actually, the glory of Mary compares to nobody. Nobody can reach the glory that Our Lady received. So you're absolutely correct. There is no, God is not a socialist. I keep on repeating this. God does not love all of us equally. How do we know that? Where do I get that one from? Am I making this up? Gospel of St. John, right? Who was the one disciple that Jesus loved above all? John. John. Who was the one disciple that Je- loved Jesus more than all the others? Either. Go figure it. Simon, Simon, do you love me more than these? The more than these included John, the one whom he loved more than anybody else. God does not love all equally. Our, our Lord did not love Our Lady. Or rather, our Lord did not love Judah the same way He loved Our Lady. Make sense? But God loves all to such a degree that He calls all of us to be His children in heaven. Without exception. All are called. Yes. The question is, did the angels behold the beatific vision prior to their decision to be with God or not? The answer is no, they did not. The angels were created in some space, I cannot describe it to you, where they did not see God the way He was, and they had, the, the, they had to, go, to undergo a test, they had to choose, and some chose and others did not. Yes. You had a question?: Yes, it is indeed the case that he gives more graces to some than he does others. That is absolutely the, the, the case. Uh, and as a matter of fact, St. Bonaventure, who was a doctor of the church, indicates that while the mercy of God is infinite, his acts of mercy are not, they're finite. So he has a certain act of mercy that he wants to bestow upon each and every one of us and once he's bestowed those, he stops. He doesn't continue. And so some who do not respond to his acts of mercy stop receiving mercy and keep on living. And St. Bonaventure, who was the sweetest, gentlest saint you can ever meet, asked this question, why do they keep on living? And his answer is, to increase their punishment. Yeah, absolutely. So, From our perspective, what we need to understand is that God gave us so much more than we ever deserve. Way more. God is not unjust. He owes us nothing. And he went completely out of his way to give us way more than we deserve. Now, from a very simple, practical point of view, if you're going to confession every week, if you're going to Mass every week, and if you can every day, if you're saying the Rosary, if you're reading Scripture if you're trying to truly live a Christian life at home, and everything I've said right now, every one of those things I've told you is accessible to all of us. None of what I said requires degrees in theology. None of what I said requires us to go live in a desert. If you were to do these things and do them for the love of God, if you were to reign on your concupiscence for the love of God, if you were to pick a piece of paper from the floor for the love of God, you will reach a degree of glory you could never even imagine. Put it this way. Imagine the greatest degree of glory you could ever receive. Try to imagine that, okay? Whatever you're imagining right now is probably the, a tiny fraction of what God has reserved for you. In other words, when you get to heaven, God willing... You're not going to sit down and say, well, well, how come I received, how come he got more than I did? You're going to go, this is mine? It's just going to blow your mind away for the next three billion years. You see, we, God is not uh, Scrooge. In one of his uh, conversations with St. Faustina, it just blows your mind away. If you haven't read it, I really strongly recommend you read these conversations. Jesus comes to St. Faustina and asks her, Daughter, would you like me to create a universe for you? And I just want you to think about the question for a second. Not, would you like me to give you a house? Or a nice little area that is secluded? Or maybe a whole mountain with a lake and nice rivers? Or a country? Or a planet. No. A universe. A whole new universe just for her. By the way, she wasn't pestering him with it. It was not on her Christmas list. Jesus came to her and said, Would you like me to create a universe just for you? How many of you here are thinking when you get to heaven, there will be a universe just for you? Raise your hand. How many of you have that on your list of to do when you get to heaven? Explore my own universe. Figure, out oh, what I want to call my planets. Do, do you? We, we can't even conceive what He wants to give us. It's just beyond belief. She answered, Lord, if I have you, what do I need a new universe for? Which you go, mm, couldn't you have said yes, yes, just for a second, <laughs> for the rest of us? No. That's what she said. Yes. Super abounds. Yes. Where sin abounds, grace super abounds. So, for all of us. Exactly. We, you see, we most of the time can be concerned with these questions. What well, am I receiving as much as in the other? In the practical sense, and a day-to-day life, none of those questions really matter. Because we're given way more than we ever deserve, and if we could be Correspond to the graces we're receiving right now. What awaits us in heaven is beyond our imagination. That's all we need to know. The rest of it is sort of interesting to rebut some um, questions that unbelievers of sorts might have or people who have issues or difficulties to remove obstacles. But for our growth and our spirituality, none of that really matters. The basic things. Go to confession. Go to Mass as much as you can. Say your rosary. Spend time in prayer. Develop a true devotion to Scripture. Learn it. Illuminate your your reason. Understand the faith. And, and, And ask for God's mercy to be in your heart so you can live with Him. And ask for the union of love with Jesus. Ask that you can get to heaven. Ask for those basic things. Again, God owes nothing to anybody. He doesn't owe us to take us to heaven. None of us. You have to, if you don't if you cannot live with, in peace right now with this, what I'm telling you, you're not going to be able to live in peace in heaven. I'm willing to show you why. You get to heaven, God willing, and you're there, and let's say 150 years went by. Mm-hmm. Within 150 years, I am willing to bet that there will be somebody you know who's not going to show up in heaven. Somebody you care about is not going to be there. Yeah? How do I say that? Wide and easy the way that leads to perdition and many, many chooses it. Hard and difficult is the way that leads to salvation and very few find it. Right? Many, very few. That, that doesn't mean 50-50. Right? So, so the, the idea here is that few are saved, many are lost. So there's going to be somebody you know who's going to be there. Okay how are you going to be happy? If today you can't be happy with that notion, how are you going to be happy up there? Do you understand what I'm saying to you? Yeah. So, uh, the, the, the fathers of the church, all of them, without exception, will tell you that the majority of humanity go to hell. The majority. It isn't because God wants them to go to hell. It's because of our own inclination and passion and preferences for the dirt of this place. God gives us the graces. God comes to us. Whether we are in the church or outside, God gives us all the graces we need to be able to come to, to Him in many different ways. And we don't. That's our choice. Absolutely, it is a good choice. Not only pray, but sacrifice. No, it, it doesn't work this way. The, the recipient of the gift is not what God looks at. It's your love. So And it depends what you're asking for. Example, Solomon asked for himself to receive wisdom. And he received it beyond belief. It was for him that he prayed and he received it. True, but he asked it for himself. Most of us, when we ask for a gift for ourselves, it will benefit others. Otherwise, God's will is not done. So, he asked it for himself. And he received it. Um, others can pray. David, for instance, fasted for the, ch- for the child... Right? and sat in Ashclos ash and prayed for the child of him in Bathsheba, and yet the child died. God doesn't measure it this way. Yeah? But prayers and sacrifice is essential, especially for others. Yes, but see, this is the key word you just used. How can we have favoritism? God does not have favoritism. The fact that God loves some more than others is not favoritism. Let me put you this way. Somebody comes and break your car, destroys it, smashes it. You go out and you say, look, not only am I going to forgive you the fact that you broke my car, you don't have to pay for it. Not only that, not only will you not go to jail, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send my son instead of you to jail. And I'm going to make you my son and make you part of my inheritance. And to you, I'm going to give $400 billion dollars. If you're truly, truly um, appreciative of what has been done to you, you wouldn't care that to somebody somebody else he gave $4,000 billion. Because to begin with, he owed us nothing. But that's what God the Father did. God the Father did exactly that. God the Father said to us, All right, you committed moral sin, original sin, and because of that you deserve hell. You became the slaves of the devil. And through justice, I could leave it there he owes us nothing. We are bound to hell because of the disobedience of Adam and Eve, and then also because of our own disobedience. Okay? Rather, we lost heaven because of the disobedience of Adam and Eve, and then we are bound to hell because of our own disobedience. So he owes us nothing. He's not being unjust. Now he comes off and says, okay, I will pay the price. I will buy you back, which would be great, because then we'd be back to where Adam and Eve were. But he says, not only will I buy you back I'll actually make you my own children. And allow you to inherit from me. And oh, by the way, to do this, I'll send my son, my only beloved son, to die for you. Now hold on a second. There is no question of fairness. Not fear, but... There is no question of fairness here. Again, God is free to do what He wants, He's not bound by our sense of justice, which is usually flawed. He, for God to love uh, John more than the others is not a show of injustice. Because again, to be unjust is to not give somebody what is his due. But it isn't that God didn't give us his due. He, didn't, he, he went way overboard. That's what you need to really... Yes. But why would you... Hold on. Why would you say we're all afforded the same thing? But wait a minute. Why do you, hold on, why do you deny God the right to give more to one than to the other? But that's what I'm talking about. When I say God loves one more than the other, he gives to one more than to the other. That is his prerogative and his right. And he's not being unjust. No, no, no. Look, love is not about, love is not utilitarian. God did not choose our lady as his mother because he needed one. He chose Mary because he loved her above all else. Love is this, that God has loved us first. And God's love is free and complete. God loved Our Lady not because she was going to say yes and through her all the other things are going to happen. Uh Uh-uh. He loved her for who she is. Yes. Yeah. So this is the example that uh, the sister of St. Teresa gave her when St. Teresa was having a problem. She said, look, you have cups of different sizes. You have a, a a maker who makes cups of different sizes. The cups are different sizes. And when you fill them with water, they're all filled to the brim. You can't add to them. So every cup is happy. It can't contain more. But there are some cups which contain far more than others. But it doesn't make the small cup sad because it's as happy as it can be. So God creates variety and God creates people in different degrees and he loves people in different ways and yes he does give graces to some that he doesn't give to others there was this one man who was a Jew. He was on his way to, to Rome to kill the, the, the Holy Father. He had his knife with him, and it was in the 18th century. He's going down to kill him. He was writing his diary. He gets to a grotto, and he's sitting outside, and his children are playing in there, and comes back out and says, Daddy, Daddy, you should come see the lady in there. What lady? He goes in there. Mary is standing right there. She appeared to him and gave him a whole catechism of the faith, and he got to Rome and got baptized and, and turned his life around. Then you have people who go through years and years and years and years and years of good living and good life. I'd never get to that level. Saint Catherine of Siena, she knew nothing. She was illiterate. She couldn't even read or write. And then, boom, boom she got f- infused knowledge of the faith. Absolutely, God loves some more than others. But you know what? It is His prerogative. My point, as far as I'm concerned right now, is this: God. Gives me all the graces I need to be saved. Never mind what he's doing with others. He's not going to do anything to me. As far as I'm concerned, he's given me way more than I could ever imagine. What am I doing with him? And when I get to heaven, whatever I imagine I'm going to get, is going to fall short to what he's going to give me. That's the key. Ah, could you be upset in heaven? No. So then, what happens? Yes. Okay, I'll give it to you this way. Right now, when you say, I want my kids to be with me and I want my family to be with me, some, I'm not talking about you, I don't know what your intentions are, but to some, the intent would be that I want them to be in heaven, not for the greater glory of God, so I can be happy. And when we have... Hold on. Right. Right, right. But, bear with me. Bear with me. I understand. Bear with me. The point I'm trying to make to you is this. We love them in an attached fashion. Why? Because they are our children. So there is the children of the neighbor, and we don't feel this way towards the children of the neighbor. They're not, our, they're not our children. So we have what we call natural attachment to our kids, which is imperfect. God has supernatural attachment to all of us. The key I'm trying to make to you is this. When you are in heaven... You're going to be happy whether your children are there or not. You as as you yourself. Why? Because you are going to see God's justice. And it is God's justice that will make you happy. That's the key. When you see everything through God's justice, what He has done, never mind His mercy, just His justice, that will make you happy. You will see, I understand you will understand. Right now you're thinking, I can't understand that. You see why the reason is so important. But when you understand how God operates and He shows it to you, you will be happy. Even though those whom you loved on earth are not there. And the attachment that you feed for your children on earth, the natural attachment in heaven goes away. Unless they too are in heaven and then they are, the, the, the attachment becomes pure and supernatural. You see? You see? That's the key. We, most of us, all of us, when we don't examine ourselves, are attached to those who are close to us on a natural level. It's self-centered. It isn't for God's glory. It takes purification of our souls to reach to that level to where if our child dies, we can live it with a certain level of peace. And it's not the drama and a disaster that tends to be in some homes. You see my point? Okay, Yes. So let's deal with this one. So, something horrible happens. God is love. Well, if God is love, how could he allow for something horrible to happen, right? Well, the answer is very simple to this one. God, there is no love without freedom of the will. God wants us to love him with using our free will. Hence, he gave us the use of our free will as a gift. And since he is one who gives a gift, he will not take it back. And we are free to do with it whatever we want. It does not prove God's existence, nor does it disprove God's existence. It's actually a logical fallacy. Does this make sense? Predestination. Yeah. Okay. How does this work? Right? Um, The way this works is as follows. Free will is the ability of man to make a decision with the knowledge and information that he has. You can think of it as man making a choice among the multiple pathways that he has in front of him. Predestination is God's arranging all those pathways such that they don't impinge on our ability to choose. We are finite creatures. If you put before me an infinite number of choices, guess what? I can't choose. I can choose only when I have a finite number of choices. So by putting a finite number of choices before me, you have not impinged upon my freedom of uh, my, my free will. You've actually allowed me to exercise it. Hence, God knows how much we can choose, what we can choose from, and He arranges all those paths in front of us in such a way that they allow the exercise of our free will without taking away the fact that there is predestination. Make sense? You're absolutely really choosing. It doesn't take away from the fact that you did pick two. Therefore, the graces or the, the punishment associated with that are yours. At the end of the day, what matters is the glory you receive or the punishment you receive. Hence, you've exercised your free will because that's all you knew. That's all was before you. God did not take away from you the ability to decide, as a creature, not as a creator, what you wanted to choose. Do you understand? Let me put it to you this way. You have a little kid. You have a little kid. He's three years old. And there is a piece of cookie on a table. And you tell the kid, don't, pick the, don't take the cookie. Even though you know full well he's going to take it. Why did you tell the kid not, not to take it? Since you knew he was going to take it. Why? To teach him? To help him? Did you impinge his free will? Have you, has your knowledge of his choice taken away from his free will? No. Why? Because God is not a tyrant. He loves us. Therefore, the fact that he knows about our choices is not something that empowers him to act upon it and limit us. He would be a tyrant then. Make sense? Yes. Oh, good question. Is the Depression the work of the devil? Is um, the earthquakes that we're seeing work of the devil, right? Luther believed the devil was everywhere. He was behind everything. That's one extreme. On the other extreme, you have folks who think the devil doesn't exist. As Catholics, as usual, it's the middle road. Uh, and the way we look at it is through the book of Genesis, the devil can't make you do anything. Yes. He cannot. Let's make that very clear. The devil does not have power over you. He can overpower you force you to do something. He doesn't. Now, if God did not restrain him, it would be a different story. Because the devil has an intellect superior to that intellect of all the human beings put together. Right? He's very cunning and of extreme intelligence. Something we cannot even comprehend. But because God gave us free will... The devil cannot read your mind. He doesn't have access to your in, inner, inner soul to read and, and understand what you're thinking. This is a sanctuary that is yours and yours alone. And only God can enter that sanctuary. Who knows the human heart? Save God. Right? Scripture says, only God. So he cannot do that. What can he do? What did he do to Eve? He didn't show up and beat Eve on the head with a club, did he now? Whisper. That's all he did. right? So, what is the problem? The problem is this. Um... We are like, we're supposed to be like a fortress. We're supposed to be like a fortress with multiple walls. St. Teresa, Av- Teresa of Avila in her book, The uh, uh, Interior Castle describes the castle as multiple walls. The outward, outer wall has doors that are always open. These are senses. We don't close that, that, that wall. Things come in through our senses. But they're supposed to stop there for us to examine them before we agree on to something. I'll give you an example. My typical example, you've heard me give it multiple times. You're in the kitchen washing dishes. You are with me? It was pasta on a dish, and you're washing the pasta dish, and it right, pasta out of the dish. And right there and then, there's this thought that comes to your mind. My son is dead. Or something happened. Some unsettling thought comes to your mind. Because we're not spiritually trained, we naively conclude, it's me, I'm thinking this way. Or we think, I'm getting a revelation. So we unsettle our reason. If we're trained in the spiritual world, we know that there are three voices we hear in our mind. Three. Our own, the voice of our guardian angel, and the voice of the devil. Now I'll tell you right away, the voice sounds the same. There is no difference. You can't tell one from the other by hearing it. It's the same voice. Why? They use your voice in both cases. So how can you tell which is which? This is how it's described. If your soul is like a lake, and you're in a state of, of, of grace, you've been going regularly to the confession, then when the devil speaks to you, it'd be like a rock that thrown in the lake. It produces a big splash meaning it causes unrest in your soul. If you are in a state of sin, it doesn't. It's peaceful. On the other hand, if you are in a state of grace and your angel speaks to you, the voice of your angel comes to you and it is one that is strong and prompts you to the good. The voice of the devil causes unrest. And eventually, you learn to, oh, you, it comes to you, it hits you like a missile, like a missile exploding. And you know anxiety is coming at you, and you know, okay, that's stupid. You ignore it, and you keep on focusing on what you're doing. Do you understand? So, when we, were, we live in a world where people are, have all seven walls completely open, how do they open the seven walls? I'll tell you. No control over what they see. Right? So... Rated art movies, pornography, you name it, they watch it. No control over their appetites. They eat to gluttony, they get drunk, they drink. right? They go after humor without necessarily finding out if that humor is morally acceptable or not. As long as it's funny, it's acceptable. Their language can be foul. Their interests, ambitions are completely focused on the world, not focused on the spiritual. They never go to confession or hardly do so. They are completely open to the playground of the devil. And so, you go through all these issues you're describing. Because their sources are typically spiritual. When, they're not, when there are no chemical imbalance and issues of that nature, right? On the other hand, the spiritual person knows they're in battle. This is a spiritual battle. It's a spiritual combat. So, what do you do? You protect yourself. You avail yourselves of all the weapons that the church put in front of you. You go to confession regularly. You say your rosary. You pray. You are conscious of who you are. You are asking God's wisdom to help you interpret the signs of times and read and listen to what's going on in your head. You don't act on it. You're controlling your appetite. You're working on your virtues. You are a fortress. Do you see the difference? Yeah. So, of course and f- interestingly enough these people they have this and then the other they have a lot of material possession and they are restless right? because you cannot be restful when your soul is hurting when your soul is is starving and you can't feed the soul and of course the devil wants you to go from one to the other on and pushing you further further away from any rationality anything to make you think wait a minute this is not working for me i need to do something else yeah. You Got a question? Yes. So you're talking about the second coming of Christ. What happens at the second coming of Christ? What happens at the second coming of Christ is that those souls who are in purgatory will be freed from purgatory and those who are on earth will stand judgment just as those who are dead will be raised from the dead either to go to heaven or to go to hell. That's exactly what is going to happen. Is there anyone that doesn't have to go to judgment? No. No, you cannot. Even the saints would stand and, uh, before judge. Even Our Lady had to go through judgment. All of us do, with no exception. And in some cases, it isn't because God wants to uh, punish us. It is because God wants to show, He really wants to show off the glory that He gave to His mother. So it's not really not a court of justice as it is a court of glory right? for His saints. Yeah? They have been there until the end of time. That's a pretty long time. So, yes, once the second coming is announced, that's it. No more purgatory. No more purgatory. Yes. Very good. Uh, I'll tell you this. If you're listening to rock and roll, there is no way on earth you're going to be able to pray. Zero. Zero chance you'll be able to pray. Rock, by its very nature, is set to move you away from this. Forget the words. Forget it. it doesn't matter. There's no such thing as Christian rock. It's an oxymoron. That doesn't exist. Rock, by its very beat, invites you to pushes you away from prayer. It makes you, it focuses on sensuality and it makes you hungry and restless. There's no way you'll be able to pray. That's what I will tell you. Likewise, if you're watching TV on a regular basis, you're not going to be able to pray. If you're playing games on a regular basis, you're not going to be able to pray because all these things are feeding your senses. And when you sit to pray and there's nothing happening, you get depressed in three minutes. I don't mean clinical depression. I just mean this is boring. I can't do that. And you'll get up. You're essentially stacking the deck against you. You'll be like somebody wanting to uh, go on a diet and you eat french fries every day. Good luck with that. So... Understand that that the spiritual life demands of you some sacrifices in your taste and what you do. It requires discipline. But if you were to do these things, you will come to know true peace. Because that's where you will find God. God is not in the noise. God is not in the thunder. God is not in the storm. God was found by the prophet uh, Isaiah or Elijah, one of the two, in the quiet of the breeze. So it's only in silence will you be able to hear God. So, yes, you get yourself in trouble if you're into any of that stuff. Get rid of it. Yes. Yeah, yeah, wait, wait. But there are two judgments. There is your personal judgment. We all go through our personal judgment at the moment of death. When we die, right when we die, we're going to face Jesus, and he will judge us right there and then. And then there's a second judgment where there is the resurrection of the body. Because remember, in heaven, we are still incomplete. Today, the saints in heaven are incomplete. there is something they're still hoping for, which is their bodies. right? Remember, what do we say in the creed? right? We hope in the resurrection of the body. we're waiting for that. we we'll wait for the resurrection of the body, right? That's why Mary is the completeness of the church because she's their body and soul. she's complete, yeah. They will all join the spirit, but either to heaven, glorified, or to hell, which, and they will appear like a monstrosity. Because they would have lost all, the, all that made them an image of God would be gone. So you, but they look more like monsters than like human beings. You had a question? Very good. The first thing I want to clarify, I'm not saying you intend to say that, but I've heard it many times said before. When we die, and I'm sure you understand this, but I want to clarify it, we don't become angels. right? We stay human. So our nature does not become angelic. You understand what I'm saying? Yes. Human beings, which include kids, have a human nature. Angels have an angelic nature. Be like dogs have a dog nature, and hippos have a hippo nature. When a dog dies, he doesn't turn into a hippo. So when kids die, they don't turn into angels. Very good. I just wanted to clarify. You mean saints. Why not? Why not saints? You don't mean canonized saints, but everybody in heaven is a saint. Everybody You're with me? Okay, they're not canonized saints, they're saints. Okay, I just wanted to clarify this because I get that quite a bit. All right, the church defines the age of reason at which time we are now liable for our sins to be about seven years old. And that's why, for instance, in the Latin rite, they give communion to children right around that age, and that's the first time they go to their first confession about seven years of age. I'll tell you this. In Fatima, when Our Lady appeared to the three children, Francesco and Jacinta were about 10 and 9 years old. And they asked about a friend of hers. Jacinta asked about a friend of hers that had died that year. And Our Lady told her, and so she was about 10 years old. And Our Lady told her, she would be in purgatory until the end of time. You see, our problem is that we underestimate sin. We underestimate the holiness of God. And we we'll make it really easy on us. Until the end of time. I mean, it blows your mind away. What did she do? Well, I don't know, but that's what Our Lady said. So, my, my answer back to you, before a child reaches the age of reason, he's, no, he's not held responsible for anything he does. So, generally about seven years old. But really, Christ knows. Some kids who are 5 years old know already, right from wrong, and they know exactly what they're doing. Others, they turn 70 and they still are innocent as a lamb. They have no clue. So, The church, as a matter of practicality, says seven. Right? Have I answered your question? Okay. All right. Two more questions and we're done. Go ahead. Yes. What about people with disabilities? So, when you are next to a person who is severely mentally and physically handicapped, and this person is baptized, exactly. You're standing next to a saint, he's a fount of grace. He is a fount of grace. He is a saint. That's why the church fights so hard for the handicap. Hold on. Are you asking me how will we appear after we die? Oh, we will appear in the fullness of youth. We will appear at the peak of our physical beauty. Is that satisfying? Yes. Uh, So you're asking when they are in heaven, will they have? No. No. If you and I today were to see Mother Teresa, we will not recognize her. The the glorified body is all together. It's one of those perks I was telling you about. We can't even imagine what it is like. But no, it's nothing. So somebody had a pimple. Is he going to have a pimple? No, no, no. Well, no, it's a deformity that is due to original sin. But when, you remember, God will wipe away their tears in the book of Revelation. That means none of that will be there. You will be as God intended you to be in physical and spiritual state. More than heal. I mean, it's, it's, it's a new creation. No, no, no. I want to clarify this. Complete would indicate that if you lost an arm, you would have the arm. What I'm trying to tell you is that you will be a new creation beyond complete. So you'll have impassibility, agility, your body will never suffer, neither heat nor cold, you will never grow old, you'll never hunger, you'll have control over matter, you can walk through walls, you can walk through the sun, you can fly at the speed of thought. It is something beyond our imagination. We can't even understand what it is. That's why I'm trying to stress to you. Way beyond being complete. Complete just doesn't cut it. That's what I'm trying to get to. You understand? Okay, last question. Uh, It's a really hard question when a woman makes an act of abortion. You see the problem with this one, there have been many attempts so far to see if they can say that the baby will go to heaven. But the problem with this is the covenantal relationship between the mother and the child. And an abortion that is committed by a mother is a curse against the, the child. And curses of parents are really, really strong. So we don't know exactly how this is carried. Obviously the baby is not baptized. Without baptism we don't know how you get to heaven. Uh, the best we can say right now is that they will stay; they will be in a state of natural beatitude on earth, like Adam and Eve were. But they will not behold the beatific vision. Okay? Yes. But see, from my perspective, Medjugorje is not a recognized apparition. Yes, I know that it's being investigated, but it's not recognized. So we'll have to wait and see. The answer I just gave you is the answer of Saint Thomas Aquinas, who is the ordinary doctor of the Church, and by this. The church means that in all cases where you don't have an answer, you go to St. Thomas. And this has been the long-standing tradition of the church. The problem with this answer that was given in Medjugorje, eh? and I'm not saying it's a wrong answer. I'm just saying the difficulty for us, the challenge, is that these babies were not baptized. And without baptism, you can't go to heaven. Well, no, no, even without the sense that somebody who's unbaptized cannot make it to heaven. You see, baptism is the first sacrament we need. So let's talk... No, no. no. Yeah, you're right. But let's talk about a child of a Christian family. A child of a Christian family, the, 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 there was a, um, uh, a miscarriage. Miscarriage, right? Not an abortion, a miscarriage. If... Um, the reason why in that case you can say that this baby will go to heaven is because of the desire of baptism of the parents. In other words, had the baby was born, then he would have been baptized. And the church says that there are three ways you can go to heaven. Baptism, desire of baptism, baptism by blood. In this case, the baby is covered. When a woman aborts her child, she's cursing him. And the covenant of parents to children is very strong, given by God. So not only is the baby not baptized, he's under a curse. We fail to explain how, in this case... This human being can go to heaven because of a violent death when some other human being under the same violent death can't. You see, we are traumatized by the violence of the death, and we should be. But in the grand scheme of things, from God's perspective, the fact that the child was aborted, the death was violent, or the fact that a two-year-old, let's say, for a Muslim family dies of uh, poison, of something, right? Those are two deaths. And for us to say, because the baby is aborted, he can go to heaven, but that kid two years old, who happens to be born in a a Muslim family, can't go to heaven, we're going to face many and significant theological difficulties. So, so far, the position of the church has been, without baptism... You can make it to heaven. And in fact, in one of the encyclicals, the Holy Father says, actually the Catechism quotes the Holy Father saying, as far as those children are concerned, we leave them, we entrust them to the infinite mercy of God. And an interesting thing is what the church does not say. Because if the church could say with authority they're in heaven, the church would have said it. Because the church wants to extend, wants to show God's mercy. The fact that they did not, Indicate that we can't so far. We haven't found a way to say it. So, maybe what was said in Medjugorje was true, but we yet don't understand it. And we'll have to see. No, it is still a um, private revelation. Uh, none of us are required to be bound by any of the private revelations, be it Lourdes or Fatima or any of the other ones. There are all private revelations not to be put on the same level as the private, private pardon, as long as it does not contradict the teachings of the church. So, if I hear these words, at this point, I can't put much weight in them because I don't see how I can reconcile that with the official teaching of the church. Once the church finds a way to reconcile these, then I'll believe in them. Because in all things, I will not go one step ahead of where the church is. So, that's where we show God that we are truly the sons and daughters of the church. We wait for the church to make her pronouncement and then we follow. Make sense? All right. God bless you.
0: We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Corbono. For more information about this and other talks, Please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you, and God bless you.